If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. We're excited to hear from James Park, the CEO of Fitbit now. So, you guys have been doing this obviously for quite a while now. One of the early people in the space.、Um, you know, the category still does a lot of the same things it did a few years ago. What have you learned、uh, about how people use the products, what they do, what they don't do? Yeah, I think、um, some of the things.、Uh, Is that there's really no one size fits all to the category.、Um, wearables, there's a lot of personal preferences as to how people want to put these devices on their body. In fact, when we started the company eight and a half years ago, we started with you know, clip based devices because one of the, the biggest things in those early days when we talked to people was that、um, a lot of people were kind of sensitive about、um, telling people that they were trying to lose weight or become more active. So they wanted something more discreet that they could put into their pocket, or a lot of our early users actually just clip it. Clipped it to their bra.、Um, and so、uh, as the category evolved、um, and we understood more of the use cases, you know, we branched out into wrist worn wearables, other t y p e of form factors, different price points, styles. Fashion became something that、uh, has become more important. So、um, I think the, the, the really interesting thing for us is just、uh, all the different ways that people want to incorporate these devices into their lives. Now, I've been a pretty big skeptic of the category. I try them all. I've tried them all over the years.、Um, you know, when we met last week, I was like, you know, I, I know I don't sleep enough.、Yep. I know I could take more steps. It's not useful to me. And you guys kind of challenged me. You said, hey, why don't you try this on? Let's see what we can find out about you.、Uh, what so did, did you learn? We did notice a few things. Uh, so uh, it, was we, it would have been great to get, collect more days of data. But、uh, one thing we saw was that、um, your overall. Heart rate was much more elevated during conference days than right before.、Um, I think like 20% higher just throughout the day. That was pretty remarkable. I mean, there w a s no dips at all. I think you're pretty stressed out、uh, all day. <laughs>、um, Do you agree with this? Well, I was saying that actually did come as a surprise to me. Like, I feel pretty relaxed. I felt more stressed up in the days leading to the conference. Like, this is the fun part. But I guess you are kind of on. Yeah, and, yeah. That's, and that's a great thing about sensors and data is that you know, rather than just relying on your perception of how things occurred,、um, they're giving you、uh, pretty much the actual truth, and that can be powerful in the future. The other thing we noticed was that、uh, definitely alcohol impacts your heart rate. And your so、sleep. that bender I went on, that was a problem? <laughs>、uh, I think it looked fine, but definitely your sleep、uh, right after you took、uh, a, 
I don't know how many drinks you had, but uh, was two glasses <laughs> of wine. Trust me, I had to be up and in makeup at seven this morning. Okay, so I was it was not. much higher than the sleep you had the night before, and then overall, uh, I think you get about thirty percent less sleep than the typical person oh, wow. uh, that matches your demographic. But about eighty percent more than Kara, so it's. A... <laughs> I don't have access to her data. <laughs> so this brings up a good point um, I was just talking about earlier, where. Uh, these devices, Fitbit, are great at tracking your data, mm-hmm. but um, in terms of telling you sort of what to do next, like what should Ina do next according to Fitbit, or what are some solutions to that, and how do you see that as being sort of critical to what Fitbit does? Yeah, I think that's going to be very critical. I think a lot of, um, even eight and a half years in, I think we're still in the early days, and a lot of the early days still, still involve trying to just get these sensors into forms that consumers are willing to accept, pay for, and wear all day, whether it's price, comfort, battery life, et cetera. But I do agree that the next step is going to be making sense of the data and giving people coaching and guidance. And you know, along that step for us, we bought a company a few months ago called Fitstar, which actually tries to use biometrics to give you uh, guidance on uh, workouts and physical therapy and things like that. So um, you're going to see much more of that in the future. Because I feel like if, if at some point, you know, it says your heart rate's really high, you know, take a deep breath, are you mm-hmm. stressed out, that I might actually do. Yeah, like the see. generic get more sleep, you know, you know, don't work for Kara, you know, those types of <laughs> tips, I kind of know that. Um, <laughs> okay. How much, can you, how much guidance can you offer without sort of towing the line or crossing the line into, you know diagnostic, medical, yeah, FDA territory. I, I think there's a, there's, a fair bit of, um, uh, there's a fair bit of gray area between pure consumer and pure medical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think even the FDA would agree that they're still trying to understand this whole category and um, trying to blend you know, really consumer benefits and the safety of consumers at the same time. But um, for us, uh, you know, we're just in the early stages of gathering a lot of this data, trying to figure out what to do with it. And um, I think it's going to be, for me, fun to just figure this out in conjunction with, you know, uh, regulatory agencies like the FDA to really figure out how we deliver value. You don't often hear fun and work with regulatory agencies. (laughs) Uh, It's something new. I always like to learn new things. So, um, and I think the government in general just, you know, they're trying to do good as well. So we all need to figure it out together. And and I think a lot of people don't realize there really is this divide right now in in the world of particularly wearables, but tech where you know, there's sort of fitness and wellness where as long as you steer clear of certain things, you know, basically the only approvals you need are for whatever wireless technology. And then if it's going to be a really a medical device, it goes through the FDA. It's a longer testing process. But you can do you know, potentially much more impactful stuff. Would you guys, are there ever features that to you guys would be valuable enough to add that you would take that longer development time to get that kind of approval? Yeah, possibly. I think as sensors get more and more advanced, you know, I can't really predict when these sensors will find their way into consumer devices, but people always talk about you know, uh, better ways to measure your blood pressure, your stress, deeper sleep metrics, um, glucose, etc. All those things, I think, to be truly useful to consumers are going to require some level of FDA approval. Um, and we do have a lot of experience at Fitbit today. Um, our ARIA Connected Scale is an FDA Class II device. And um, what we found is that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's actually, if you can take the right steps, the right precautions, and, and try to strike that right balance between um, consumer friendliness and, and still, uh, you know, getting approved by the FDA. You mentioned earlier that it's all about getting sensors into form factors that consumers 
you know, will accept. What other form factors are really interesting to you right now aside from the wrist? Um, you know, I think what we call clippables are, are still pretty interesting. There's um, a lot of people uh, who, again, um, just don't want to display to the world that they're, they're, they're using these type of devices. Uh, the wrist is definitely an interesting place. Um, honestly, like, the wrist is actually one of the more challenging places to put sensors because, um, you know, if we look at things like optical heart rate, uh, it's actually very difficult to pick that up off the wrist. It'd be better if, you know, people are willing to wear things on their ear uh, or their finger all day, for instance. But um, obviously that's, um, you know, not going to quite happen. Uh, Would but, you make something that goes in the ear? Uh, I think in certain use cases it might be interesting. I mean, you see a lot of sports headsets today that are incorporating uh, pulse socks, uh, heart rate sensors um, into the headsets and, and taking those metrics off the ear. So I think in select use cases, um, you know, there's definitely opportunity for more advanced sensors to be incorporated in those locations. And that kind of gets to sort of, you know, how the future evolves. Like, is it is Fitbit's vision of the future people always wearing Fitbit hardware? Or, you know, do you expect other devices are going to have sensor? My iPhone has some sensors. My headphones might have some sensors. Do you see Fitbit's role as making sense of that data coming from a variety of sources, yours and others? Or are you guys really Fitbit products and making your own products is really important? Yeah, so... Um one, I think one misconception of Fitbit is that we're a wearables company or a hardware company. Um, we're more of a digital health company, and the mission of Fitbit is actually pretty broad. It's to use technology to help people get healthier and more active and giving them data, inspiration, and guidance. And we can do that through hardware or software. Um, but overall, we feel that we do want to try to vertically integrate as much of that stack as possible because a lot of people in this category, they aren't necessarily... Uh, gadget geeks, um, you know, in the early days, there's a lot of talk about quantified self. Most of our users are not in that, uh, in that group. And so they value things like simplicity. They value things like these devices disappearing into their daily lives and, you know, focus on battery life, et cetera. Um, and so we want to just create that really intuitive uh, overall solution that helps people reach their health goals. That's, that's what they're interested in. Hmm. So let's talk about Apple Watch. Mm -hmm. Do you see Apple Watch as competitive to Fitbit? Um, I think at least today, we target very different segments of the market. Um, we haven't seen any material impact on our trajectory, and I think Apple is succeeding in, in their own way uh, with their product. Um, and you know, the market overall is really big. Consumers spend over $200 billion on health and fitness products and services every year. So with $200 billion of spend, there's clearly opportunity for more than one company to be incredibly successful. And for us, um, look, we're very focused on our customers and our mission. And, um, you know, I think the biggest challenge for any company in this category is just consumer awareness. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's, I think everyone's pretty aware of wearables. But, uh, you know, we are living in I have in no a, idea what you're talking yeah, about. Exactly, yeah. But I, I was just going to say, to, to, with Lauren as Exhibit A, most people aren't going to do what Lauren's doing Ooh, right now. And so the market may be really big in dollars. Yeah. It's actually really small in risks. Uh, the average consumer... <laughs> they have two. You know, I haven't met many. and two pockets. Um, yeah, two so to some degree, mm -hmm. um, even a, a real gadget aficionado, which may or may not be your target market, it is only going to wear likely one wrist-worn device, maybe two if you're really lucky. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think there is a competition for what is really useful to have on my body. Um, and do you feel like we have... The answers to that is today's Fitbit products. The answer is the Apple Watch. The answer, or 
are we still waiting for what's truly useful enough to wear every day? Um, I think I've a, a lot of our users do find our products um, life-changing. Um, if you look at our statistics, uh, for a given user who starts using our products and is sedentary, uh, after about 12 weeks, they end up increasing their activity by over 40%. Um, and so, you know, the thing that motivates me every day are all the emails that come into customer support of how our devices have literally changed people's lives. Um, not only in a consumer setting, but uh, for, you know, people get our devices in corporate settings as well. And there it's a situation where they might not have considered even wearing one of these devices in the first place, but their company hands it out. And then they're amazed at the impact that it has on their lifestyle because they get caught in this really addictive feedback loop, whether it's uh, analyzing and viewing their own data or competing with their friends and family or coworkers. So um, today, I think these devices are transformative for a lot of people. But that's not to say that there's a lot of work to be done in the future, especially around analyzing and making sense of the data. But how do you keep people wearing them? This is a theme that has actually run throughout this entire conference. Yesterday, Kara was saying on stage she has a drawer full of wearables. Mm -hmm. She tries them. You know, you try them. Yeah. And, then, um, and this is not just a Fitbit thing. It's Jawbone. It's Apple Watch. It's mm -hmm. everything. Um, when I ask people that question, they often say, well, it's the software. We keep them in. It's, it's so smart. You know? but, but really, how do you keep people using your yeah. devices? And how big is the drawer problem for you guys? <laughs> um, you know, the way I like to answer this is uh, to put it into context. So what came before smart wearables? It was you know, people did gym memberships, uh, home gym equipment. And if you look at the utilization and retention of those type of services and devices, they're terrible. I think I read a statistic that said, 40% of gym memberships are actually never used at all. So people sign up and then they just don't go. Um, treadmills, other, other equipment in the home, I think um, there might be a high level of interest in the first couple of weeks, but a steep drop off. So um, what we're seeing is uh, a lot better engagement for that. And you know, the software answer is there, but um, I think uh, the software and the social engagement that happens on top of the data is incredibly powerful. Um, what we see with our data is that uh, with every friend that you add, your activity levels increase. I think with every friend, you end up walking about 500 to 1,000 steps more per day, up to a certain number of friends. So you just can't add like 10,000 friends and uh, expect that to, <laughs> to, to scale infinitely. Um, so what we do at Fitbit is we, like any other social network, uh, we focus on a, on a few social metrics. We try to increase the density of our social graph. So that's you know how many... What's the average number of friends that people have? And then the engagement that stems off that density. So um, as we improve those metrics, we see engagement uh, steadily increase. Isn't there, isn't there some t sort of irony in that, that the answer is then not technology, it's just people? It's just, well, you're, you're, you're in better shape when you're social, so do you need the technology? Well, I don't think, I, I think um, it's, to me, it's comforting because uh, that shows there is a way to, uh, combine people and technology to, to help people get healthier. And that notion actually isn't something, if you look at Weight Watchers, I mean, they use the power of community for decades to get people uh, to lose weight. So what, what I feel we're doing at Fitbit is taking that pure human level and using technology to really assist and accelerate it. And with the corporate wellness stuff, you know, Lauren got into this a little with Julia, but, you know, how are companies using the data? Is it purely personal data and the companies are saying, we know that if we give these to our employees, we'll get some benefits out of it? Or do they have access to the data? Do insurance companies, how, how do you manage what is a tricky sort of 
data question. Yeah, so um, you know, when we when we really started the corporate wellness business, the the privacy and security of the data was something that actually everybody was worried about, not only us but the companies uh, as well. That, that kind of surprised us, uh, but the companies were very concerned about the privacy of, of their employees. Um, so when we work with companies, we actually have an informal bill of rights, uh, and we will not work with companies who do refuse to follow that. So it all has to do with um, how they look at the data, how the data is shared. Um, you know, employees have to uh, participate in these programs as an incentive and not as some type of punitary measure. Um, so those are all important parts of our corporate wellness program. But uh, I think you mentioned this before just previously, Lauren, that um, employers see these devices in their corporate well- wellness programs as a great way for employees to get healthier, which results in greater productivity, reduce stress, reduce absenteeism, and obviously lowered healthcare costs. But do they see? Do they only see aggregate data? They, they only see aggregate data, and we'll only work with companies who agree to look at the aggregate data. Hmm. And who's the biggest company that you're working with right now for your corporate wellness? Uh, right now, it's Target. So we work with over 50 of the Fortune 500 today, but we signed a deal with Target a few weeks ago. So Target's going to be uh, distributing Fitbits to uh, you know most of their U.S. staff, which is over 300,000 people. So that is probably the largest corporate wellness deal for wearables that, that I've seen. And you've been working with a few for long enough that they've seen some results. What are some of what the companies have seen? Yeah, so a great example is BP, um, British Petroleum. Um, they've, we have a pretty large deployment with BP of uh, almost you know, forty to 50,000 devices. And this is the third year that they've re-upped in the program. Um, and you know, a lot of the benefits they see, particularly since they're... Uh, somewhat of a manufacturing oil energy services company, Mm -hmm. they're not only concerned about getting their employees healthier, but also the impact on workplace safety as well. Uh, So, for instance, you know, they feel that employees should get a sufficient amount of sleep uh, because that really impacts the alertness that they have on, you know, during the day and and subsequently safety. Hmm. What types, when you look at sort of what to build in, I mean, there's, there's a myriad of features that anyone can put in a wearable. Some people are trying to cram an entire smartphone and a modem into a wrist. Some people, you know, misfit, you know, it's basically a sensor and there's no screen at all. You guys obviously have a range of products, but how do you decide what features make sense for you guys? And what are you thinking down the road? Do things like payments make sense? Mm-hmm. Do things like authentication yeah, so um, I think the benefit of being a very focused company in this category is, you know, it allows us to develop a product portfolio um, that enables our product designers to kind of target very specifically what each of the devices in our, in our portfolio do. Uh, so, for instance, our Fitbit Flex product, it's supposed to be a very minimalist band for people who just don't like to wear bulky things on their wrist. Um, but that obviously limits the number of sensors that you can put onto that device, mm-hmm. all the way up to our Surge uh, Fitness Smartwatch, where it's our biggest device, which allows us to cram in way more sensors, have much longer battery life, et cetera. Uh, so for each product in our lineup, um, it's just kind of a gut intuition on what the exact blend is. But definitely one of the more important things is battery life. But you've mostly stuck with fitness features. I think that product that you're wearing, the largest one, uh, will get notifications mm-hmm. from your smartphone. But that's 
today that's kind it, of the limit. A, yeah, it's, it's a, we, we try to focus on fitness because, um, look, I think the general knock against general purpose wearables is that there's still no killer app. People are still struggling to figure out what these devices are good for. And I don't think adding more and more features really helps the consumer in any way understand the value of these devices. Uh, so for us, um, you know, the mission of the company is clear. The value proposition of our devices are clear. And consumers understand exactly what Fitbit stands for and why they want a Fitbit device. But overall, um, we do want to increase the utility of our devices over time. That's why we've gradually added things like caller ID, text notifications. But it's a very thoughtful process because we don't want to overwhelm the user. But one of the more important things is that we do see with our more advanced devices that have uh, some more general purpose capabilities that uh, engagement and retention is actually longer and better with those devices. Huh. So I think that speaks to our theory where you do have to have a core value proposition, which for us is fitness. But um, as you subtly and thoughtfully add additional things that add value to the devices and people's lifestyle, that they're going to engage with them more. So would you add payments, payment you know, features to Jawbone's done it, Apple does it? Uh, yeah, I, I think the user experience has to be, has to be right. Um, and you know, we have to... We have, to, we have to figure out, is it the right trade-off? Like, what does adding payments do to the core features of the device? Does it make it bigger? Does it cut down on battery life? Does it muddle the message of why you want to buy this thing? Like, how, does, how do payments fit with fitness? So those are all things that I think really need to be thought out before just launching something into the okay. market. Speaking of Jawbone, uh, earlier this year, in the spring, Jawbone did file a couple of lawsuits against Fitbit. Um, for patent infringement and trade secrets. Were you surprised by that? Um, I don't know if I was surprised. I, I, won't, co- I won't comment too much on um, you know, Jawbone's motiv- motivations, but overall, look, we were the, the early pioneers in the category. We started the company over eight, eight and a half years ago. Um, we have a healthy patent portfolio ourselves with over 200 filed and issued patents. Um, in fact, you know, I don't spend too much time writing patents anymore, but I've, I've uh, written about 100 of those uh, myself along with the team. Um, so for us, look, uh, we're pretty comfortable with our level of innovation. Um, our preference is to compete in the marketplace. And um, you know, our market share speaks for itself. We have 85% market share in North America. And I think that speaks to the quality of our products, the technology, and the fact that consumers love our products and the brand. But why weren't you exactly surprised? Does that say something about sort of the nature of, of tech and how people are constantly suing each other over patents? Or does it say something specific about you and Jawbone? Uh, I don't really know the Jawbone team at all. But uh, for us, look. They were here. Yeah. You guys yeah. not get a chance to no, hug no, it out? We didn't, we didn't hang out. We didn't we, have dinner. I thought I saw you and Hussein at the bar last night. Oh, yeah, no? you know, yeah. Okay. Uh, Look, it's easy to get distracted by a lot of these issues. I think the reason that Fitbit's been so successful is that, um, you know, we've been really focused on heads-down execution over the past eight years. When you look out a couple years from now, how similar do you imagine the products that you guys will be making will be to today's products? Are they going to look fairly similar and just have a bunch more sensors? Are the sensors going to be better? Or do you really think a year or two from now we'll really look and say, wow, this, you know, I, I get how they went from this to this, but this is really different. Yeah, I think the, the one thing you'll probably see more of is the fusion of fashion and technology. Um, we had a, we've had a, you know, a long partnership with Tori Birch, which has been pretty successful. In fact, I think when uh, Tori announced her first set of accessories for the Fitbit Flex, they ended up selling out in three, within three hours on her website. 
And so that really opened their eyes to the power of just um, how fashion really, fashion wearables really resonates with people if done in, in, a, in a, I guess, a natural way. I think there's unnatural ways that tech companies try to work with, with fashion brands, but um, you know, I believe our Tory Burch partnership was pretty successful and an indicator of how things in this category can, can evolve over the past, over the next few years. So you think one of the big areas they'll look and feel a lot better? I think they'll look different. They might, they'll probably not look like the wearables today because I think when we talk to uh, a lot of our customers, particularly women, you know, they wear devices, they comment, look, it looks like a rubber band. And we're like, you're right, it looks like a rubber band. And so, um, you know, I think everyone knows that uh, they're wearing the devices today because it adds a lot of functional value. But if it just fit into their lifestyle a lot better, um, I think you'll, we'll probably see things like retention engagement improve. Huh, that. Interesting. So one of the things I'm a little curious about is a lot of people don't know a lot about you. I mean, you're, you're you know, the co-founder and CEO of now a publicly traded company. Everyone knows Fitbit. It's the Kleenex of, Kleenex of fitness trackers. And, but you've been pretty under the radar over the past several years. Yeah, right? we actually worked on the same floor at CNET for a couple of years and didn't realize it. Yeah, um, Ina told me that she never saw you walking around. So I think that's, no, well, that, that's why I started the company because I was out of shape. So, <laughs> so I mean, what is your what is your health and fitness routine like? What... Uh, I don't have too much time, so I like to pack a lot into a short amount of time. So uh, I don't, you know, I probably run about twenty miles a week, but it's usually like really, you know, I'll try to do a three or four mile run every morning. Uh, at an incredibly fast speed, do some calisthenics, et cetera. So uh, trying to be very efficient with time. And do you try other products when you're doing this? Um, Compe- you know, competing products? Yeah, I mean, look, part of my job is understanding where the competition is. So yeah, I do try out competing products. And has there ever been anything that you've tried or you've, you've thought, well, this is pretty good. I mean, we should be doing this. I, I don't think I can publicly comment. On okay. That, so. <laughs> um, speaking of being a publicly com- company, you, you guys, you know, went public, and uh, you've been doing this for a while. You also do something that I think a lot of people in the room might might not relate to. You guys make money. You're profitable. <laughs> what is that like? And how did that happen? Uh, yeah. In fact, the I think the banker said, "Ooh, this this might make the IPO a little challenging." No, because <laughs> um, <laughs> people don't know what to do with you. Where do they fit you? Uh, we value you at 10 <laughs> times last year's losses. We, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, so, you know, we always had a very difficult time raising money as a company, um, as a private company. And, you know, what that forced us to do is never, really never expect the survival of the company to depend on the next round of financing. So really the goal for us from day one was to achieve profitability as quickly as possible. And I think we, we got there around year five or six or so. So, um, you know, that was, there was a lot of urgency um, on the part of the company to do that. And so I think um, that just gave us a lot of operational discipline over the years. And I think, you know, that capital efficiency is, I think, one of the reasons why we've been able to succeed in the category. And do you see that discipline kind of remaining? Do you see yourselves making a lot of acquisitions to grow faster? Or do you kind of see steady internal slow growth? Yeah, so um, I think that operational discipline is always going to remain. Um, in fact, probably a little bit more so since um, you know, we, we added our, our CFO a year ago, and um, he's even more disciplined than, than we've been historically. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're, we're, we're not going to take risks. In fact, you know, uh, there's a lot of private companies that 
you might hear they're afraid to go public because they're worried about what public investors might say, that they won't be able to take the same level of risks. But um, I haven't seen any difference in the way that we make decisions within the company. Um, part of that has to go with our dual class structure. Um, but also, you know, we realize that these are the early days of the category. We do have to take risks. And in places where we don't take risks anymore, if I really think about it, those are risks that we probably shouldn't have been taking in the first place. Hmm. So that level of public scrutiny also, I think, lends, uh, adds a lot to the discipline of the company. So Fitbit, five years from now, what does it look like? Specifics. Um, <laughs> specifics. Uh, I'll be specific in a general way about that. Um, so I do think, you know, it's, it's the ideas that we touched on earlier. There's going to be a lot more software that's going to be in play on top of the hardware. And um, that's already reflected in the organizational structure of the company today. Uh, two-thirds of our R&D and two-thirds of our engineers are already software engineers versus hardware engineers. And we'll probably continue that level of investment, if not more, over the coming years. Funny, Hossein said the same thing yesterday, that there are a bunch of software engineers and data scientists now at, at Jawbone. Yeah, I just feel we're a little bit ahead. See, you guys must have discussed this last night when you hugged it out. <laughs> um, cool. Next year, we'll have you guys on stage together to talk about how you're all totally best friends. Totally looking forward to that, yeah. Um, <laughs> we could go on for a long time, but I want to make sure if you guys have questions, uh, we get a chance. So uh, do folks in the audience have questions? No questions? I see okay, there we go. Hey, James, I was like, thanks somebody a lot. must have bought one of yeah, these. Yeah, absolutely. Things. Okay, so thank you. Uh, really interesting to hear what you were saying. I have a question. You described Fitbit as a digital health company, and you know, I've used and loved all of my Fitbits. The part that always struck me as odd, though, is that it's calories out, not calories in. And you know, I've used your app to count my calories and found it so cumbersome that I find myself either cheating or not doing it, you know? And I'm curious if you see any innovation coming in that way because it, it just seems like that's so important to be the complete loop. Yeah, so calories in, definitely, I agree with you. It's, it's challenging, it's tedious. It's probably been that way since the early days of Weight Watchers. Um, so the way I think nutrition is probably gonna evolve over the coming years is actually not more complexity and not more detail. Like, I don't think it's gonna be an issue of, you know, who has the biggest food database, for example. Um, I think it's going to be interfaces that are much more simpler that keep people, um, you know, uh, maintaining just good habits uh, of eating over time. And I think that's going to allow more sustainable behavior by people rather than, you know, right now this cumbersome, tedious way of inputting. Like, What about everything? pictures? I've seen, I think it was Google, but it might have been Microsoft. It might have been somebody else. Uh, their research units really being able to tell from a picture pretty good identification of what things are and portion size. And yeah, I'm, I'm still a little skeptical of that, but I think the bigger challenge with photos, I think photos is one of those things where, you know, on first blush, it's, it sounds like a really great idea, but then when you, you know, prototype something, you give it to people, a lot of people sometimes don't remember to take the photo right. at the meal, and then afterwards you're like, well, I can't yeah. take the photo anymore. Right. So um, I think you have, there's, a, there's a lot of nuances and, and use cases that you have to think through in this particular area. So what about a kid's product? Is that something you guys have thought about? A lot of kids do use our products, but we also have to be a, a little extra sensitive to the right. privacy and data security issues. So uh, right now, um, you know, really Fitbit's meant for, for people over 13 years of age, um, but I unofficially do see a lot of kids huh. using it. Um, the other interesting, more amusing thing is, is pets as well. Uh, if you look at our database, um, uh, in the early days we noticed 
what are all these profiles that have people that are like two feet tall and weigh 20 pounds, and there's tens of thousands of them. And when you look at the profile photos, it's like, you know, people's, people's dogs. <laughs> and there is a company, right, that makes it? I think there's a few. Whistle, yeah. But you guys haven't made one. No, it's not, it's not been a focus for us. Um, but you do have a lot of pets still using the product? We do have a lot of pets using the product, yes. Pet bit. Yeah. A lot, loyal pet base. Yep. Great question. Thank you. Hi, James. Dave Zinman. Question is around um, the form factor. So I'm a big Fitbit fan, but, uh, and I have what I think is the smallest one that does what I want it to do on my wrist, but even so, I still feel it at night. Um, is the, the, size, the size and the, just the, the weight of it on your wrist is something that over time we'd expect to decline? Um, is that, what kind of trajectory is that on? Is that important to you guys? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be advancements in sensors, low-power radios, microcontrollers, et cetera. I think, um, you know, the way we think about it is we currently have um, six wearable products. And so in, in, in each of those products is a unique value proposition, whether it's um, number of sensors it has or battery life or form factor weight. And so I think the exciting thing for for me and the team as product designers is within each of those six slots, like what are all the trade-offs that we're making? So hopefully at some point we'll, we'll have one that hit, hits, your, hits your sweet spot. So, so you'll be, you do envision over time you'll be able to do what, say, the surge does today in a smaller, you know, or the Possibly, possibly. Or... But then, you know, other people might want a bigger screen right. to see more information. So in those cases, we might say, okay, that larger form factor is a, is a great opportunity to include let's say, more power-hungry sensors because we can put a bigger battery in that, in that class of device. And what do you think about on-body sensors? I want to get to Yonatan's question. What do you think about, you know, just instead of having to wear a wearable, you know, I'm putting a Band-Aid on or swallowing yeah. a pill or some of these yeah. other approaches? Um, I think there's definitely a place for those, but it, has, it, it, it needs to add a tremendous amount of value. So if it's just a Band-Aid that does what today's wearables do today, um, I don't think that's really interesting to consumers because if you talk to people, um, a lot of people just don't like putting stickers on their body, but if it delivers something that isn't possible in uh, a wearable form factor today, then yeah, I absolutely can see consumers doing that. Right. Jonathan? That's actually very much uh, my question, so let me just extend it a little bit. Um, you think of yourself as a digital health company. Um, wearables are one way to collect this data, consumable or embeddable in the body are probably better in terms of the quality, the fidelity, etc. Is this something you think will be a part of your product line or will be something as a part of the data set that you will ingest in the future? Um, you know, there it's probably more about partnerships than, than us developing devices. Um, you know, we still primarily think of ourselves as a consumer brand, not a medical brand. Um, so if it's more of a, you know, even a semi-implantable like a Dex conference, since that's more of an opportunity for a partnership rather than something we do ourselves. Okay, one more real quick. Yeah, I'm curious if you've ever looked at energy harvesting techniques using like, you know, kinetic or thermal uh, semi kind of technologies for your products? Yeah, obviously battery life and technology, harvesting technologies like that, you know, that's something that we always look at. I think the challenge for us is due to the size of our devices, um, you know, what I see a lot today is that the volume of these energy harvesting technologies, uh, we're probably better off utilizing that volume and adding a bigger battery than having the harvesting technology inside. But, you know, hopefully those things improve over time. Sure. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah. So much. thanks. Great to have you.